You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Power, speaking today with Joe Mazumdar, analyst from explorationinsights.com. Joe, welcome back onto the show. It's been a few months. Let's talk mining reform in Mexico. Uh, the l- lawmakers there just implemented a little tougher, harsher mining laws, not as friendly to the companies. Can you break down the key aspects of this and how it is affecting your personal investing in Mexico, please? Hey, Bill, thank you. Uh, so uh, in the actual reforms, they, uh, a lot of companies were expecting them in September. This was something that was coming up. Um, some I talked to a company about the first draft of the reforms, uh, and uh, they were hoping that the next draft would be less egregious. And and I, technically it was, but it's still a bit of a shock for some companies that uh, didn't see it coming. And it, it happened over the weekend where the Morena party that uh, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador or AMLO runs, they have the majority, but they actually took this off-site and voted on it. And then it sort of became released. And so what I was seeing was a bunch of interpretations from different lawyers about what it meant. And what I can gather is that any company with concessions right now seems to be grandfathered. So whatever rules and regulations were implemented for their concessions stays the same. And so companies that are, you know, operate there that are from there, like Grupo, they're okay with it. Uh, the the big objection originally was the, the the mining term the term of the concessions was like 50 years originally then there were rumors that it would be 15 years and then a renewal of 15 years so 50 going to 30 but what's come out now is 30 years and then a 25 year renewal and the renewal isn't automatic it's conditional upon you know a lot of impacts and so, but then we get to all those people, like, as we know that, that there, you know, being a sort of a pseudo moratorium on applications for concessions, you know, during the, during AMLO's period. Uh, and, and so what they've been waiting for is the new mining law reforms to be able to implement on the new concessions. And so now they've put them in, they're saying that anybody that had a pending concession is not grandfathered. They're basically canceled. And so they have to start again. And now the new concessions require a lot more reporting. Um, they they require a lot more studies. And and some lawyers have interpreted that to mean that social impact, ecological impact, bonding, uh, a lot of these other things that you would do for you know putting forward a mine are required at the exploration stage, which is hard for a junior explorer. Mexico gets a lot of exploration funding. I'm being next to Chile outside of the U.S. and Canada in the Americas. It's like fourth. And a third of that money comes from juniors. You know, and so the question is, like, if you're a junior explorer, given, you know, the high barrier to entry right now to actually get a concession, uh, do you choose Mexico anymore versus another spot? Um you know, Mexico is the number one silver producer in the world. It's top ten in copper and gold. Um, and so, will will people look other ways? You know, to uh, into other countries. Who's ever there right now? I think they're fine. Uh, 
Uh, but the problem is, even if you want to acquire concessions, the transfer of concessions is is conditional now. It's not automatic. Um, and so that's another problem. I'm going to a seminar tomorrow to get a little bit more, you know, but it, it seems to me that a lot of these uh, uh, reforms that have been put out are being interpreted and are going to be contested, and some of them are going to test the constitutionality of them as well. So if there is an Explorco or developer in Mexico right now, and they have geological success, prove out a deposit, does that deposit, is it going to be valued less by the market, do you think, uh, according to your current understanding of what they've changed here? Well, if the market understands, and if it is true that the concessions are grandfathered, the sentiment, the negative sentiment would discount some of these ones that may not be impacted by the the mining reforms because for them technically nothing has changed um uh, but the ones that would be impacted are those companies that have uh that have pending concessions and have raised money to work on ground and then suddenly find out that they don't have the ground uh i mean there was a recent cancellation of concessions held by chesapeake gold um, 700 hectares of their 4,200 and I think 60 hectares that, that go on their resource. They're contesting that, um, you know, and uh, we'll see. And I know Radius Gold uh, had applied for concessions around their Amalia joint venture with Pan American Gold. That where the joint venture area is, that concession was granted. So that's not a problem, but they, they picked out a much larger land package. Now the federal government is sort of giving them the impression that that's, that's not going to be grandfathered, that that's, that could be canceled. But they already had approval by the local state. And the problem is, for, you know, their problem is that the time allocated for the federal government to actually make a decision on it was passed by the federal government. So they're saying that, okay, you know, you passed that timeline. It's not our problem. It's your problem. And so we're going to take you to court. And so what we may see is a lot of court action. And the biggest winners out of this might be the local legal community in Mexico. And at the macro level, net result, possibly less silver supply and less copper supply would be a result of this five, 10 years down the road. Well, I don't know about less copper supply because Grupo seems to think it doesn't impact them. And they've got all their concessions and copper uh, is mostly in the north uh, and uh, right now uh, you don't see a lot of juniors looking for copper in Mexico just because most of that ground has been tied up by companies like Grupo uh, but silver definitely uh, for people looking for new silver projects uh, you know that they oh they have this nice idea that now this ground has opened up this area is 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 now available let's get that. Um, you know, and now we can apply for concessions. The time to get the concession, the amount of work required, it's got to be an incredible sort of deposit. But then the other problem is that you don't have first pick of the project because then it goes up to a Dutch auction where everyone's got a bid on it now. And that's another problem that they've introduced. Interesting. Well, let's continue to talk governments and mining policy. Let's move down to uh, Chile. Their lithium policy, what are your thoughts on this and how it's impacting the lithium sector? So Chile, like copper, they're the number one producer and they're, I think, second or third behind Australia uh, with respect to lithium production. Uh, but they have the biggest reserves of lithium. Uh, but this is more all brine, uh, uh, Solar de Atacama, 
The biggest producers are a local company, um, SQM, uh, and then uh, the other one is Albemarle. SQM already has a lease, I think, until the early 2030s, and then Albemarle has a lease until 2040-something. So they're guaranteed to produce what they produce up to that time, and they're the major producers. Um, so what they want to do is do joint ventures. They'll create a state company that now does joint ventures with companies that, that have lithium deposits. So no company can actually own a lithium deposit in Chile at, and, you know, once this gets implemented, except for those guys with leases that it will happen after the lease expires. Uh, so now it's sort of like if you spend all the money, get the concession, do all the exploration, do the development, then put it into production, you give away 51%. Right now, I don't know what the value, like, you know, monetarily, you know, what what the market value that they pay for the 51%, how that works, uh, you know, in term, but, but the thing is that, you know, it's hard to convince, um, you know, uh, shareholders or prospective investors that, hey, I, we do all this work and then we get, we get a minority stake in it. Uh, and, and then, you know, who's going to take over my minority stake, let's say, like in terms of M&A, if that's my exit strategy, you know, that's, I'm not a problem because I'll, you know, even if you take me over, you will never have operatorship of this. Will project. the government pay back the issuer for all that money spent <laughs> to give away I half of the know. company? <laughs> that's the other question. It's like all that money you spent on development, on exploration, yeah. you know, uh, does that money come back to you? You know, uh, I don't know. But it obviously, you know, puts them down the run with respect to if you are looking at at brines, you know, you're probably going to prefer to go to Northwest Argentina than Chile. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Glencore is bidding for tech resources. Uh, what's your thoughts here, Joe? You like this uh, offer? Well, the thing was, uh, if we go in the background, uh, tech's obviously a big diversified miner, one of the last ones in Canada, you know, uh, Valet took Inco, uh, Extrata, then Glencore took over Falcon Bridge. And so basically, uh, this was what, what is left is tech. And Canada's putting out this big critical mineral policy and all that, and they won't have a local champion of it who has not only mines, but also refining capacity. And so Glencore is putting a bid in, put the bid in prior to tech spinning out their coal asset. The idea was to spin out the coal asset, you know, for ESG look for the tech resources part, uh, the tech, uh, which would have the copper, which would be where all the growth was. And then the metallurgical coal assets would sit outside that. But the metallurgical coal was the one that made the most money in 2022. And so Glencore wanted both, uh, and they wanted to do it before the SpinCo. Uh, the SpinCo vote never happened because Tech couldn't get enough votes for the SpinCo. Uh, and one of the reasons, I believe, was there's a Chinese company that owns a significant block, I think it's 10 plus percent, that uh, prevented them from getting the, uh, the majority to, um, you know, to, to get the SpinCo to work. So what they've saying is, is okay. Well, let's change the arrangement on the spinco, and then we would be open to an M and A, you know, by whomever. Glencore wants to do it before uh, because I, they probably think that once they do the spinco, there might be more bidding on the metallurgical coal assets, and it might 
be, you know, it might come at a higher price than they want to pay for it once it's nestled in tech. So looking forward, uh, I, I bought some tech because I'm, I'm interested not only in their, their copper, you know, their diversification. I'm also interested in the metallurgical coal because there's not a lot of people building new coal assets. And so uh, that spin out interests me as well. It, you know, it's going to get resolved eventually, uh, but the Canadian government sort of saying, you know, we're not sure if we approve this with respect to, uh, you know, foreign investments in Canada. So that's another sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, problem that, that's, that's arise. But, but if you realize Glencourt's got, you know, a lot of assets in Canada because they bought Falcon Bridge, you know, so, so they've got, they've got a lot of assets in Canada. So it, it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense, but there's still Swiss space. So we're not really sure how this will turn out, but right now the Spinco is not happening and, and tech is looking still to do that. And Glencore is still in the background on bidding, but I know there's other companies out there that are uh, that are sitting in the sidelines, waiting, that hoping that they might be a, a more appropriate, um, you know, suitor that the Canadian government might uh, might be okay with. Um, so th that's all you know drama that's happening in the background, but this is going to take a little while, a little longer to play out. When it comes to the gold majors, Mark Briscoe, head of Barrick, said that he's looking to acquire good projects but not necessarily companies via what he calls stupid deals. <laughs> uh, any comments on Bristow's comments with what's going on at the gold majors? Well, what we've seen, what we've seen is, you know, with the intermediates is they can see that there's a big discount with, uh, with developers because retail market uh, doesn't like developers because it's on the other part of the Lausanne curve. And, uh, you know, they never know if their money's the last money in, do they have enough money? And we've seen a lot of, you know, big failures in development projects, whether it's Magino, Northern Ontario, you know, we've also seen pure gold, uh, that sort of stuff. And so people don't, you know, are scared of development plays. And so they, they traded at a deep discount. So what we've seen is B2 Gold acquire Sabina. We've seen uh, gold fields come in with a 50-50 on, uh, on the uh, windfall project with a Cisco. It would have been worse for a Cisco because they would have to raise that entire billion dollars all by themselves, which would be highly dilutive. Now they have an operating company with a lot of underground mining experience coming in, so that's good for them. And they also inject like $600 million of cash into it for them, you know, to actually uh, use that for their funding of their half. So, uh, so you can see that, you know, people sitting on significant assets uh, that are sitting there with a financing, you know, uh, problem that a, a, a major that's that's got access to capital can come in and get it at a discount. And so I, you know, it, that sort of commentary makes sense. Uh, but it all depends what you're trying to do. Like Newmont is trying to be the gold play. You know, uh, they want not to just be incrementally above Barrick and then Barrick come on top of them. They want to just make a big move and get, as opposed to jumping across a pond and waiting for Barrick to jump across it, they want to just jump, fly over the ocean and just say, okay, now I'll catch me. So then any investor in gold will look at that and now look at Newmont versus the ETFs, which is their ultimate competition and just go, well, the ETF is nice. 
But Newmont offers me liquidity, like the ETF, offers me diversification, assets, ge geographic diversification, but also gives me a dividend, whereas the ETF doesn't give me a dividend. And the main thing that is, is important for a dividend is cash flow, so consistent cash flow. And so the way to do that is to get bigger, have more assets, and then a little bit more diversification because now they'll get more copper. And another big important thing for Newmont is that they, you know, at my time there, they weren't very good at, or at all, in block cave mining. And block cave mining is like an underground open pit. You know, you take lower grade, but you take it almost as an open pit mining cost, but it requires a lot of upfront capital. Newcrest is really good at it. And so these copper gold porphyries that are big, low grade deposits, you know, and then you don't want to have a huge footprint. That's one way of doing it is with underground block cave. And so that would open up a lot of potential M and E and uh, make some assets within their portfolio more valuable. Some of them being the ones that they acquired from Gold Corp in Chile. So it's it, it. I think it makes sense for Newmont to do what they're doing. But I do agree with Bristow in in terms of some of the value add for these intermediates and other companies might be in the single asset developers that are up against a big financial, you know, uh, obstacle in front of their face, and uh, they don't have the the means of getting over that obstacle. Do you think the financing window is opening for juniors right now? So for junior explorers, we've seen like with as gold's gone over two thousand, you know, market volatility increasing, the bank crisis in the states, people more interested in gold. You know, the, the thing is that over the last two years, what's been driving gold hasn't been gold ETFs. It's been central bank purchases. That's what's been driving it. There's been net withdrawals of ETFs over the last two years, 2021, 2022, according to the World Gold Council. And so any movement in gold is a perfect window for some of these companies. And they need to hit this window before the field season opens up in North America. And so I've seen a lot of the companies we have in the portfolio as well try to take advantage of this window, and they have been successful in doing so. But it hasn't been a big flood, let's say, of companies. There'll be more industry, like uh, private placements to help companies. Um, you know, in terms of development, we've seen government come in to help development projects, but mostly for critical minerals. Uh, we've seen private equity come in. The streamers are always about trying to help these companies, not help them, but <laughs> help fund them. Um, so we'll still see that kind of financing. It's, it's, it's just a little bit more tough in the equity markets right now. When you look at the decarbonized movement and the demand that we'll create for specific minerals, is there a specific mineral that you're seeing that maybe is being a little bit overlooked by investors right now? Yeah, there's the thing about these minerals, and and we know you know the niche markets are hard to invest into because the the actual liquidity for that commodity is very low, and so if anything happens on the supply or demand side, like hey, we build a new mine that totally kills the supply question and then drives the price down to nothing, uh, that can happen in a small niche market. Uh, you have to hope that that niche market is no longer niche and is growing, and, but that growth might not come for three to five years. And so in the interim, you know, you might have a problem uh, with that niche market. Uh, and so uh, my exposure mostly in terms of this carbon neutral electrification world has been in copper because it's a more liquid 
But there are other commodities that I've looked at that fall within a company that we have in the portfolio, you know, like rare earths, um, you know, graphite, as we talked about before the call, you know, that's more on the anode part of the battery rather than the cathode. And we've also talked about, you know, the segmentation or bifurcation of the of the global supply chains, suggesting that, hey, maybe a low-grade deposit in this supply chain would work because then they they can't go to that one. The problem that we've seen is that, you know, all this talk about bifurcation, and I've talked about it as well, is that, you know, when we see the latest statistics about where the U.S. is getting refined fuel, we see that they're getting it from India. And then the question is, where does India get their crude oil? Well, they're getting it from Russia. So all this is coming out and it's going back in the supply chain. And so, you know, for all of our concerns, the, the problem, you know, whatever, I mean, it's, it's coming. You know, that, that the, all those products are making it to the market, you know, regardless. One thing investors in the resource sector are getting wrong now that you see that they don't realize that they're getting wrong or what faulty assumption do you see on a wide uh, scale uh, measure that you see resource investors are miscalculating right now? Well, I think it's basics. I mean, just like, you know, we are, we follow grade a lot and oh, look at that grade, look, you know, look at that intersection and, and then actually trying to look at that intersection, like from a junior explorer and just say, okay, what is this? Is it like one meter of a hundred grams giving me a hundred gram meter or is it a hundred meters of one gram? You know, so that's two different types of deposits and then say, is this open pitable? And so if, if it goes you know, a kilometer and the grade doesn't change, then, you know, after a certain vertical, maybe 500, 400 meters, it's a different cutoff grade. And maybe that mineralization doesn't matter because it's not exploitable, you know? Uh, and then also looking at, oh, you know what, is that is that easy to extract, not only from a mining point of view, but from a metallurgical point of view. So if it is Carlin style and it is refractory, then, you know, then the, you'd need an autoclave or a roaster. And then if you're in Nevada or anywhere, you know, like, where are you going to get that from? You build it, it's high capital, or you're going to sell it to Nevada gold mines. And then that's a toll milling arrangement. And there's not a lot of companies that make money on toll milling. And so it's all that added sort of interpretation uh, that you need over just, hey, that's a nice intersection, I think that we're missing. Excellent insights. And more of Joe's insights can be found at explorationinsights.com, where Joe is the editor and lead analyst. Joe, really appreciate your insights, and I'll bring you back on the show in about three months if you're available. Right. I should still be around. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the 
the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.